Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Lindsay. And this is the Hideaway Podcast, episode 44. Sushi Su. start the podcast today yeah why don't we start with NECA we have some good news on that front good news on NECA so after about a week and a half of some serious drama going down in Brattleboro Vermont which we talked about on the podcast last week maybe just remind people what's going on just in case just in case well, the two founders of the New England Center for Circus Arts, Elsie and Serenity Smith, were terminated from their position by the board. And since then, all of the staff had gone on strike. There had been uh, petitions with Change.org with thousands of signatures saying, please reinstate Elsie and Serenity and get rid of the board. They don't know what they're doing. And if you really want to hear the detail of you know, our analysis of what we think was going on, listen to the previous episode. But the news is that the board has resigned and that everybody's effort to get Elsie and Serenity back into the organization was successful. As of July 20th, there are seven new board members. The previous four board members are out of there. All the coaches are back to work. Elsie and Serenity are back to work. And the New England Center for Circus Arts is uh, essentially you know, back on track. One of the interesting things I think we'll, we'll see is that we raised some questions about the financing and structure of, of what's going on sort of behind the scenes at NECA. And it'll be interesting to see how the new board tackles some of those problems. One of the benefits of having uh, a board that's been there for a while is there's a lot of institutional knowledge that gets gathered by the board and passed down from member to member. But now that everybody is new and they all seem excellent and highly qualified, they won't necessarily know all the details of Yes, what- but at least two of them are previously serving board members. The new... The new um, president of the board, Elizabeth Wool, she and Kate Law, they both are formerly former board members. So at least you have still some structure and consistency with two people. Well, we'll see how it goes. Congratulations to, to everybody at NECA for fighting the good fight <laughs> and making a bad situation into a better one. Can't wait to visit them again. Hopefully we'll have Elsie or Serenity back on and they can sort of talk about what their experience was like. There is a video online somewhere that you can Google that that does include them making a little speech about what's happened, including with the new executive director who's there and some of the coaches sort of just talking about the experience. But if you're really interested, we'll let you let you Google that. It's also, I believe, on, on NECA's website. Speaking of another non-for-profit program, that's Harvard's graduate theater program that's run through American Repertory Theater. Isn't isn't somebody who run that have an odd circus connection? Diane Paulus runs ART. She's the artistic director of um, American Repertory Theater in Boston, or ART for short. And her husband is Randy Weiner. He is uh, Diane Paulus's husband, and Diane Paulus also directed a Cirque du Soleil show, Amaluna, and has been the director of shows... Like Finding Neverland, Pippin. Pippin has some circus in it. Yes, Pippin has a lot of circus in it, which Gypsy Snyder, our previous guest, worked on. Um, Diane Paulus is a really interesting person because she she runs this not-for-profit organization, but then brings a lot of shows that transfer to Broadway to a commercial entity. And that's a whole other topic. But what's the reason that's interesting background is because now ART, they're theater graduate program that she heads up 
has decided to close for three years to restructure. And this is the same theater program at Harvard, right? Yeah, so it's through Harvard's Extended Studies program. So it's not actually an MFA, which is part of the reason they're saying they're closing for three years to restructure. Why it takes three years for a program to restructure is like beyond me. I think a lot of the speculation is actually that they're closing it. Mm. And this is a way to like soften the blow. But I saw in one of the articles that... You know, somebody cited just the insane amount of debt that these actors are coming out like with. Like $78,000 in debt. The average actor going to get a master's degree is coming but out. But they're not getting a master of fine arts. They're getting a master's of extended liberal arts and extended studies from Harvard. Well, at least it's a Harvard degree. But still, I mean, yeah. $78,000 in debt to become an actor seems... Um, <laughs> insane. Insane. But the other problem is now these actors are coming out of the program and auditioning with a degree from a school that's closed or closing. And a lot of them feel like that's going to hurt their careers. I personally don't. I'm like, if you're good, you're good. If you're not good, you're not going to get the job because you're just not good. But, you know, you never know. But so Diane Paulus runs the runs the organization with Diane Borger, who also has a circus connection because her daughter uh, was married to Simon Hammerstein, who runs the box for a while. I'm like 95% sure Diane Border doesn't work there anymore, right? Well, she does. Yeah, this is a whole other thing. This So ART and their whole institution is really strange to me. I did a whole semester paper on it. Diane Border was there. She left. Now she's back, apparently. Oh. Um, but, you know, like a lot of questions can be had as far as a not-for-profit benefiting from a commercial production so frequently. That's that sort of for-profit, non-profit crossover accounting challenges that we were talking about last week. Yes, it goes right along with NECA, really. It's like LC and Serenity having their own for-profit company that that is associated with NECA, right? And ART has this transferring of shows to Broadway and that whole thing and the board members and if they're involved in it. I mean, it's actually right, really parallel to NECA. Right, some of their board members NECA. end up producing the shows that are on Broadway. Yes, yes. So, I mean, we'll see what happens with ART. Well, speaking of schools that are restructuring their programs and maybe a step in a better direction, Ecole Nationale de Cirque, ENC, which... We end up talking about almost every podcast, and I, I'm, I apologize to our viewers who are listeners who are like, stop talking about that school, talk about other ones. There is some news coming out of there. They have a brand new director who was previously their finance director. His name is Eric Langlois. I'm sorry if I'm butchering his last name. It's spelled L-A-N-G-O-I-S. Is that, is that right, Lindsay? L-A-N-G-L-O-I-S. Lang- Langlois. Langlois. Eric did an interview with Ernest Albrecht for Spectacle Magazine where he talked about some of the trends he's seen in in circus higher education in in Canada and the States and the ways in which they're planning to change the ENC program. And there are a few things that I sort of wanted to highlight that I thought were particularly interesting, one of which is a focus on sort of entrepreneurship from the artist and that he's seen a lot of students building these artist collectives, which we've been talking about a lot in the last six months. And how do you how do you do those things? In fact, Lindsay and I wrote an article for American Circus Educators magazine where we talked about how important it is to teach circus artists how to start a collective because it's not that easy of a thing to do. And it sounds like ENC is now going to incorporate that into their curriculum, which I think is a great idea. It will definitely make it way easier for their students, particularly the ones who don't get jobs right out of school, to sort of create their own work and, and understand how that process happens. 
Another interesting addition to the ENC programs is that they're adding a specialty for circus dramaturgy and directing, which would have sounded amazing to me seven, eight years ago when I was applying for undergraduate degrees. And sounds like an interesting program. I mean, I don't know how you teach directing or dramaturgy in general. It was a mystery to me when we were at Columbia, sort of what was going on in the <laughs> dramaturgy and directing programs. I think, a, I think a benef- it's a mystery to the dramaturgs as well. <laughs> I think a benefit is that you can get in an academic environment is to have lots of guests come in and talk about directing and talk about dramaturgy. And through them, you can learn a lot. But ultimately, I don't really think you can learn that much about directing circus until you uh, are directing circus. It's one of those things that you learn by doing. And you can certainly learn a lot in school and working with students is probably a really excellent way to do it in an academic environment. I'd be super curious to hear from, from people who've gone through the program what it's like. I think it's a cool idea. I think if I was 18 or 19 right now and I was unsure about performing but really wanted to go into directing and stay in the artistic side of circus, it would sound totally up my alley. My The only other point I would make on it is that one of the benefits to going to ENC is that you come out with a super high level of technical caliber of, of skills. So you don't really need to worry so much about if going to the school is a good choice for getting work afterwards because the majority of performers, you know, come out with good technique. So that's just a huge leg up to start with. But spending three years learning about circus dramaturgy in Canada, I'm sure there's jobs for a handful of people, but if you have five people going through that program every year for five years, I don't even know if there are 25 circus directing jobs in North America, period, let alone in the style that comes out of Montreal. So we'll see how it goes. I'm really interested. Maybe they'll end up directing some of the student performances. Sounds like a a cool, interesting development. The last piece of interesting news from the this past week is there's a musical podcast called 36 questions was a musical podcast (laughs) good question i listened to it i listened to the beginning of the first part so basically it's this team called skip bronchi and zach ackers of two up productions and they had this idea of doing a musical podcast so basically it's a musical that doesn't have a set, costumes, anything, lighting, anything. It's just literally a podcast musical, so you listen to it. Is that different from, like, an album recording of a musical? I mean, not really, but I think it's, like, a musical that's specifically written to be a podcast. For that medium. Musical, yeah. I mean, when I was little, like, I listened to all of the album recordings and something like The Secret Garden or basically any of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musicals have almost all of the lines on the recording and so I would just listen to it and I knew the entire show so it's not really that different but it's just with the intention of writing it for a podcast musical so it's called 36 questions and it's only two people in the musical it's Jonathan Groff who people might know from well Glee. a lot of things yeah Glee probably and Frozen he he voiced the uh voice of Olaf no, Olaf. No, is, not Olaf. Um, What's his name? Sorry. He voices like the baddie, right? He's the guy who like she falls for and isn't actually a goodie, right? He's like the bad prince. No, I think he's like the good prince. I don't know. There is no good prince in the in the No, but who who's Olaf's like friend? Hans. Oh yeah, Hans. Oh, does he voice Hans? I think he voices Well, whatever. So he's Jonathan Groff Jonathan Groff from Frozen and <laughs> 
and Glee. He was also Josh in, Gad did Olaf. Josh Gad did Olaf. He was also in uh, Hamilton for a bit, played the king, and my favorite musical, one of actually. Yeah, my probably my favorite, Spring Awakening. And then he sings along with this girl named Jessie Shelton, who I don't really know that well, but she was in Town and has a really beautiful voice. And so I started, you know, this sounds like right up my alley because I, like I said, love album recordings, love musicals. And the idea is really interesting. Obviously, I love podcasts. I listened to the first mm, 12 minutes of the act one of three acts that they're releasing. I wouldn't say it's super enthralling Mm. so far. I really am going to give it more time, but what's the production quality like? Like, is it, is it a, this American life level, like amazing storytelling production quality or is it more like the hideaway podcast where it's two mics in an office? It's more like our podcast where it's two mics in an office. And you know, and that's like what they were using as, as a part of it with it's all voice recordings on her phone is what the, what the, Mm. what the idea is. And the songs are pretty, but they do sound a lot like, you know, just contemporary musical theater songs. And part of, uh, I think the joy and interesting part of listening to musicals is seeing it and seeing someone sing and the emotion. I'm not giving up on it. I haven't yet gotten hooked on it. That to me, it sounds like if it's done right, which maybe this first iteration isn't, Mm -hmm. could actually be an amazing sort of medium. Like there are so many stories that you can imagine set up for podcasts that long form aren't that interesting but if you find serial or if you find s-town you find one of these super long forms that elevates maybe there's a version of that maybe not this musical but another musical that would really work yes and i think there's a benefit to having a full story with a cast a full cast and Mm. it's really pretty but it's you know you're listening to it all you have is what you're listening to and if the story itself isn't that enticing or it's hard to like continue to pay attention i know you haven't heard the whole thing but i do wonder how if you had multiple characters how easy or difficult it would be to to tell them apart mm. from one another uh, unless you had a very very central character who's voice was sort of bringing you through the whole thing yeah but i mean something like the secret garden it's like a man a woman and a kid are like the Mm. three main characters you know really easy to hear a difference and i think starlight starlight express if anyone knows that andrew lloyd Webber musical that's all about trains and the whole thing took place on roller skates one of my favorites you know you can't really hear the difference but if you listen to it and you're into it you can figure it out Mm. because it's like dinah the the diner engine or like the diner cart, you know, and then she sings her song and it was like introducing all. And now we have, blah, 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 you know, so it goes a way to do it, but I'll give him more of a chance, but I'm not super into it right now. So speaking of loving podcasting transition, <laughs> transition, transition. <laughs> there you go. There's a musical transition. <laughs> Uh, this week, we are talking to Corey Tabino, who is the artistic director of Circus Maine. I actually met Corey a couple years ago uh, in Chicago when he was performing at the Midnight Circus doing his hand balancing act. Corey's a particularly interesting guy because he's from a similar generation to many of our guests coming up through circus school in the late 90s and having the beginning of his performing career in the early 2000s. He's trope with Salting Banco and various Cirque du Soleil shows. He's taught all over the world as a coach and instructor, and is now in Portland, Maine, as the artistic director of Circus Maine, which is sort of the evolution of what was previously called the Circus Conservatory of America, which 
built this beautiful circus building in order to sort of create a bachelor's degree circus program. But because of funding and other issues, it didn't end up happening. But this beautiful building still existed. The town of Portland wanted it to be used for circus. Corey and his partner Josh have turned it into this new circus school. Before you listen to the interview... If you like our podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, tweet us, or email us at hello at hideawaycircus.com. Here is our interview with Corey. Corey, where are you from originally? <laughs> uh, so originally I'm from Staten Island, New York, um, which you would think I would be a city kid, but this was in 1973. Yes, I know I'm old. And at the time, Staten Island was basically a rural area. Like I grew up running around in the woods and, uh, you know, New York City was was a, a ferry ride and a dream away. So, um, yeah, from Staten Island, Florida, uh, New York. Were you seeing a lot of shows and theater and things as a kid in New York or were you isolated from that? So isolated. Um, I almost never went to New York unless my I went to I, I believe I went like about three or four times with my father to work because um, he worked in Manhattan. Um, and then my parents moved from uh, Staten Island, New York, all the way down to South Florida, basically to Coral Springs, Florida, a little bit north of Fort Lauderdale. And that happened when I was around 13. So I kind of grew up half the time in Florida and the other half the time in, uh, in Staten Island. Well, that's why you said Staten Island, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, it's, they're almost interchangeable. A lot of New Yorkers, I call it the Great Migration. A lot of New Yorkers got sick of the winter and they said, hey, this Florida place sounds great. So, um, <laughs> oh, nice. And, oh, it's not. <laughs> so what was the first uh, the first thing that got you interested in circus or were you doing gymnastics? What was the, that first step into the world? Yeah. Um, so it's a really weird story. So my my I was in high school and my grandfather died at the same time, the same week that my the girl that I wanted to marry and I was in love. I was 17 years old. Um, she broke up with me um, and I was kind of forlorn with grief, obviously, upon the death of my grandfather and the loss of the love of my life. And it was at my grandfather's funeral that I went into his room and I sat down on his bed and I said, you know, grandpa, I didn't know you very well, but I'm really lost in my life right now. And I need, I need some, some guidance, please. Like I, I need to, something to feel good about because my life feels really uncertain right now. And randomly enough, I was sitting on his bed and on in front of me was his television. And I just randomly turned on the television. Of course, <laughs> funniest thing to do when you're asking for guidance. And on the television was Olympic gymnastics. And I was watching this guy tumble, um, across the floor. He was doing a floor routine. And I was like, wow, that guy is not afraid of any, anything. Um, that's what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> and uh, upon returning to New York, my, the funeral was in, uh, was in New York. Upon returning to Florida, I went to the closest gymnastics place I could find. And I said, I want to learn gymnastics. And the guy's like, how old are you? And I, I said, oh, I'm, I'm 17, even though at the time I was 18. Um, and he said, oh, you're way too old to start gymnastics. And I said, please, just give me a chance um, and about a year later, he gave me a job teaching. I, I just, I really took to it really, really quickly. So that's how I started gymnastics. Um, and until I saw Cirque du Soleil on television, I just sort of did it because I was, I was enamored by how, you know, crazy and how defiant of gravity it was. But once I saw Cirque du Soleil on public access television, because this was before the era of the internet, um, I was like, that's, that's it. That's what I'm doing right there. Um, and I, in fact, I saw one of the first Cirque du Soleil shows that was ever televised was uh, a show called Nouvelle Experience. And uh, it was the chair balancing act from Nouvelle Experience that I saw that really I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to I want to be a hand balancer like like this guy. 
Um, and strangely enough, I'll, I'll tell the end of that story, but the other show that I saw um, was Salt and Banca, was the original Salt and Banca that was in 84, which was hilarious because after I, you know, went up to Montreal and got into ENC and got into Cirque du Soleil, that was the show that I actually got into. Um, but it was seeing it on television that first that got me interested in circus. <laughs> That's so cool. That's like a nice little roundabout story. Yeah, this, I, I'll, I will continue that because actually one of the one of the clowns that was a hand balancing clown, a guy named Gennady, who was one of the um, he was sort of the secondary ringmaster for, for Sultan Banco. I actually wound up. He was the reason I started hand balancing, and I wound up being in the same cast as him. And I would you know frequently train hand balancing with him. It was a really cool. cool round circle to go. So after you saw Cirque du Soleil on what access was it? Public access. Public access. I'm a, I'm at 28, so I should know that. Um, public yeah. access. Um, how did you, how did you then find your outlet for circus going from gymnastics to then being like, I want to do circus? Yeah. So at the time, Cirque du Soleil was not necessarily it wasn't touring in the united states it, it wasn't the multi-billion dollar you know corporation that it, it that it is now like the only way that you could see one of the shows was if you were had seen the very brief tour that they did mostly in in the north and i believe maybe one of the vegas shows was started maybe mystere had started about that time but there was almost no like you had a there weren't even any vhs's of it you you saw it on on like a locally run television be, um, because that's just what they put on in the middle of the night. Um, so there wasn't any, there weren't any circus schools. The, uh, I remember calling the Ringling Clown College and saying, uh, you know, hey, I'd like to come and be a circus acrobat. And they said, well, you know, we train clowns here, but if you want to be an acrobat, you have to be part of a circus family. This is literally what they oh. told me. There was, <laughs> there was no training whatsoever. Um, so I, through another series of very bizarre events, I'm not sure, sure how long this interview is, but I, I, I learned word of mouth that there was a circus school in Montreal, Canada called Eco Nationale du Cirque. Um, and I, somebody, somebody gave me the phone number. I called up there, having never spoke French, got a French-speaking secretary who I finally managed to get some English out of him. And he said, I'll send you a brochure. So he sent me a brochure to, uh, to apply for the circus school. I made a video um, and I wound up getting in. And there, and off the off to the races I was. <laughs> was ENC like sort of the same school? Was it even in the same building when you attended as it is now? Well, no, it was uh, it was down in Old Montreal where the currently I believe Circle Oise is occupying the old train station, but it was right there off off of Berry Street uh, in the old port. And did you study hand balancing like you had planned? Well, actually. Uh, I got in and they said, oh, you're not good enough to be a hand balance. You have to be really flexible. You have to be all these things. We want you to do aerial straps. So technically my major at ENC was aerial straps and there weren't any minors at the time, but I, I ended up convincing the my hand balancing coach that, you know, at least I was allowed to attend all of the handstand classes. So I sort of cheated. And when I was supposed to be leaving the school, I just went to every handstand class I could I could. Especially in my second year, I was showing up in the morning and doing about three or four hours of hand balancing training before I started my full day at ENC. I, I overtrained and I, I worked really hard at it, but I managed to get somewhere with it after I got out of the school. <laughs> yeah, so then, so you graduate ENC and then what's your- I actually your... never did. Oh, you never actually graduated? No, I did uh, two and a half years and upon the third year, 
this was before the whole idea of the proof synthesis or that they had to have, you know, different shows. The school, they sort of played favorites. They had to get a, a good production and they, there weren't enough spots for every one of the students to, to be highlighted. So a lot of times you were stuck, you know, rehearsing and performing this show for four months, but you weren't doing anything in the actual show. So I didn't have any any performance opportunities in the show. So I wanted I want I ended up leaving because I got a job um, and I want so I wound up going straight to performing and never graduated. And they threatened me. They said, you're not going to get your diploma. And I said, ah, you know, my body is my diploma. I've already got a job. I'll be fine. Yeah, I don't know how many people are like, where's your ENC diploma? I need to see it. It's, it's not a plaque on the wall. Um, I still, they send me all of their, their alumni newsletters and all that. So I just never got the actual diploma. And a lot of people did that. A lot of people were kind of, I think they learned their lesson up there that they had to involve students in every one of the shows. That's why they have sometimes three shows per year so that every student can get a shot at, at highlighting what they're doing and so on and so forth. But back in the day, back in the 90s, the late 90s, they just didn't have you know the infrastructure to do that. So a lot of people were just stuck. And I was stuck. I basically, I left the show because I was setting up a trampoline and moving a chair on and off stage. And I was losing you know eight hours a day of training in order to, to be part of this production. And wow. I, I ended up getting a job with the... Um, in the Montreal Opera with Carmina Burana. Oh, um, I love that opera. I was in that when I was like yeah. in fifth grade. Yeah, I was actually on the uh, on the cover of the arts page of uh, of the Montreal Gazette for Carmina Burana in in uh, in a skimpy outfit on aerial <laughs> straps, and uh, that's the reason I never graduated. <laughs> <laughs> so, what led you to to being in your the show that inspired you in Salty and Bonco? How did that connection happen? Well, yeah. Um, so I managed to get word to a couple of casting directors that uh, that I was looking for a spot. Um, and I, I remember I met this really nice casting director. I still remember her name to this day. Her name is Carmen Rue. And, uh, and I called her every couple of weeks and she said, yeah, you know, you've got great resume. We're looking for a spot for you. I was originally uh, going to be part of Lanuba because I was an aerial straps guy, but I was turned down for Lanuba because I was too short. <laughs> I wasn't too happy about that, but you know they. <laughs> How they tall have are you? Criteria. I'm only five five. So how tall um, did you have to be? Well, uh, if you look at that show, the aerial the aerial silks slash straps position is is kind of like one of these big, tall, muscly guys, oh. and I'm, I'm just a short, muscly guy. So <laughs> they, you know that. Not every role is fit for everybody. <laughs> no. Um, but but I, I remember, and back in the day, I mean, I'm still like that. You don't want to be too assertive with your casting directors, but at the same time, you want to be like, hey, listen, you know, I, I'm, I'm really worth this. Um, so I was literally walking the tightrope between calling this lady too much and not calling enough. And finally, I said, I, I just, I just, I went for it. I said, Carmen, I'm not going to stop calling you until you hire me. <laughs> and she laughed. She said, Corey, I'll find you a spot. Um, and sure enough, um, by that time I was living in Montreal, but I went home for my birthday and a couple of weeks to visit my family in, uh, in Florida. And on my 25th birthday, I got a call from Carmen saying, we'd like to offer you a position in Saltenbanco. Um, what do you think about that? It's going to be touring in, um, Australia, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Japan. And I said, fantastic. Like it was my, the best birthday present I ever got. So were you on tour at the same time that, uh, Elsie and Serenity Smith were on? 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm I'm part of a generation that I, I was I'm so fortunate to be part of this generation because not only was I on tour with Elsie and Serenity, um, I was also on tour with um, some of the Seven Fingers like Gypsy Snyder, Sebastian, Mimi, like all of these people were castmates of mine for for years traveling through Australia and Asia. So I I felt I feel like really fortunate to be associated with those guys, um, especially the Seven Fingers. Like my roommate in in uh, in circus school at ENC was Patrick Leonard, who's like one of the head clowns for for the original circus uh, Seven Fingers show Loft. Uh, Samuel Tetro, one of the original Fingers, we trained next to each other. We had the same coach, so I just I was amongst the people that were some of the most influential in the circus world today. Uh, including Elsie and Serenity. Elsie was my roommate in uh, when we were both living and training for Salt and Banco. So, you know, as an you're as you said earlier from Staten Island, lived in Florida. You're an American. Did you find much work over the course of your you know early performing career in the states, or was it taking you predominantly abroad? Oh no, um, that was kind of a, the golden era. I mean, that that's how I I managed to survive financially for three years without a working visa in Canada. Was uh, the first year I was in school, I got a job in Vegas. Um, and between making American dollars and at the time that the American to Canadian was about 1.7. So, you know, I'd make, I'd make 10,000 American dollars and bring it back to Canada. And it was all of a sudden $17,000. So I, I did, I did one year, one summer in, in Vegas at Caesar's palace. And then the next summer I worked in Atlantic city, uh, with Cirque dreams at the time it was called Cirque productions. So I was very fortunate. I sort of hit the ground running once I was at ENC. Um, I started finding work like, quite quickly, um, which is great. A lot different from the way it is today. <laughs> um, so I want to jump, you know, probably it'll be about a decade in your career, but to the to the point where you start, you know, focusing on teaching and, and the steps that lead you to being the artistic director of Circus Maine, where did, you know, that part of your career, the, the offstage teaching, coaching, um, you know, artistic direction sort of begin to evolve and, and begin to happen in your life? Once I, when I left Salt and Banco, I left in Hong Kong and I spent a, quite a bit of time noodling around mainland China just for the, the sheer novelty of it. But, but eventually I managed to find myself in Europe um, and I found that I could supplement a lot of my traveling and performing by teaching. And, you know, I already had some amazing teachers at ENC. I mean, I owe my entire life to some of those teachers. So it was very easy for me to say contact the circus school in Belfast, Ireland, and say, "Hey, I'm a I'm a student of ENC. I come from one of the highest you know the highest pedigrees of schools in in, in the almost in the world. Um, do you need a coach for the next three or four months?" So and and I did. I spent uh, maybe about I'd say about ten months altogether in Belfast. Um, I taught in Switzerland in Geneva at a at a, a squatter circus called Circule. Um, I, wherever I could find work as a teacher, I, I, w I would. I went to the International Juggling Festivals and uh, taught some workshops there. I just found myself noodling around Europe, uh, teaching wherever I could find uh, the work. And that's how I sort of started developing a, a following. In fact, I spent about four years in Scandinavia. And right before the, the whole big 2008 crash, I was um, – I was running my own program um, locally in Oslo, and I was getting ready to drive across the border to a stunt school in Sweden to be teaching there. And I also had another school up in uh, in Fredrikstad, which is in northwestern uh, Norway, if I'm correct. 
might be a little bit different. I was also um, getting ready to open up a whole circus school there. And then the whole 2008 crisis hit, and all of a sudden, everybody was broke, and nobody could fund the arts anymore. So I wound up leaving Scandinavia to go back to the U.S. Where they fund <laughs> arts even even <laughs> worse. <laughs> yeah. No, that was basically the uh, some dark times just between 2008 and 2011. Um, I, I was teaching uh, – I actually <laughs> moved to Washington State and was living on a biodynamic farm – and I was teaching a circus class at Evergreen State College. <laughs> um, and then once that sort of fell through, or at least it didn't pay very well enough, I, I, I got on the cruise ship, um, got some jobs with the, in the cruise industry, which was very well. But I only did about maybe 17 months of that. And that's when I left that and when the whole circus main thing started coming to fruition, I guess you could say. So before we jump into the circus main story, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like teaching all these different countries? Are students different? Did they have different interests? Like, you know, like in Sweden, they really wanted to learn X while in Dublin, everybody was much more interested in Y. Any kind of interesting, you know, insights you, you gathered over that time? Yeah, um, it was very strange being from, you know, such a capitalistic country like the United States. Um, one of the reasons I didn't end up opening up a school in, in Frederikstad was I said, you know, at, at the time I had, I actually had spent some time teaching at the, the Circus Corps School, the Circus Pilotera is what they call it, although now it is the Swedish, the, the Swedish Institute of Circus and Dance. Um, and that was sort of the biggest circus school in Scandinavia. Um, and Norway was looking on opening up, a, you know, something along those lines. And I had a whole proposal to these people and I said, you know what? I said, if, you, if I can get the funding for this and the coaching staff, this can be a school – that is in direct competition, you know, as far as the quality of the coaching is concerned. And we can really bang out some some top-notch circus performers. And uh, I still remember the lady was like, well, you know, here in Norway, we're not really interested in being anybody being better than anybody else. We just want a, a place where kids can learn to have a good time. And <laughs> it was really interesting because, you know, here I am, this elite level coach. I, I train people to stand on one hand. And, uh, a lot of times that's not a good time. You know, a lot of times you have to really want to excel or you're going to be – you're not going to be able to get a job. Yeah, it's know? a funny so juxtaposition, was, right? Because in circus you sort of need to be the best in order to yes. demand the highest rate and get the most consistent gigs. And and these people, they, they just wanted a sort of like a, uh, like a summer camp for kids. And that, so that was like a direct conflict of interest. And I said, hey, you know, there's plenty of great coaches out there, but you got the wrong man. I, I'm, I'm here to, to train elite level performers. Um, and then, you know, I did spend some time in, say, a place like Taiwan. And they, they found me as a performer and they, they brought me to their, the Taiwanese National Circus School. And they said, we want you to be the artistic director of the circus school here. Um, and here's all of our students. They all lined up like a, like a regiment of soldiers and they all showed me their perfect, you know, handstands and stuff like that. But, um, one of the things I found about the Asian circus schools, well, they were like the diametric opposite. They were, it, it was all like, they pushed these kids to the point where it was almost like, you know, it was very, very dangerous for these kids. And I ended up turning that job down for the complete opposite reason. It was just too elite. <laughs> <laughs> I've so, heard stories. Uh, I had a, I have a friend who went to Chinese circus school for for wire walking, and they used to make him eat lunch on his on his wire, um, yeah. you know, just to just to make you never get off of it. Yep. 
it's so funny, the, 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 the dichotomy between having lived in those two countries, it, it was pretty darn extreme. Um, and I like my school personally to be somewhere in between those two, which is what I'd like to think it is. So how did the idea of Circus Maine come about? Was it something that you, you thought of and then found people or, uh, what, like, what's the, what's the about version of Circus Maine? Yes. I mean, you may or may not have heard of the Circus Conservatory of America, which was the original institution that occupied this building. Um, I was contacted by um, the person who founded that, who, for legal reasons, I I choose not to say, but he um, wound up contacting myself and my business partner, uh, Josh Oliver. Josh Oliver is the, um, he's the, both of us own, we co-own Circus Maine currently. And he's an ENC graduate. He's got a you know a 15-year circus career. He's a fantastic uh, rigger and fabricator and, and technical director. So he was contacted to build the current building, to design and build it. Um, and I was contacted uh, because I had a lot of con- contacts, surprisingly enough, as to sort of be the artistic director, although the, my official title was the artistic advisor. Um, and sadly, that whole project, I personally believe, got a little bit too big for its britches, and mm-hmm. it wound up suffering like most nonprofit organizations suffer from, um, all sorts of infighting and stuff like that, and it wound up uh, floundering, and eventually it wound up uh, failing. They, they, they left their lease here, and they went to brighter pastures, at which point there was this, this entire circus building that, that uh, my business partner, Josh, helped to you know, basically create. And it was vacant. So the one of the uh, the uh, people who was associated, one of the donors to the Circus Conservatory of America, he said, hey, you can't let this project just flop. We had such a strong community. Um, he said, do you want to take over? Um, and Josh, Josh Oliver, he uh, founded Circus Maine. And here we are. <laughs> so, so what's how would you describe like the identity and sort of vision for the school? Yeah, um, there's a lot of. Uh, of you know, of circus schools here in the United States. Um, and a lot of them, um, they tend to specialize or at least gear themselves towards aerial work. And, and both myself and my business partner, we, we come from a background more, more along the lines of, he's an aerial straps guy. I'm a hand balancing guy. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create a, I call it the school of show business. I want, I want to develop, um, a, a program which I have now of, of well-rounded circus performers. So not only can you do you know aerial silks or trapeze or lira, but you can also stand on your own two feet on the ground and and do some decent tumbling. You know how to do some partner acrobatics. Um, you have a solid handstand, um, and you have good theater and dance skills. So that's really what I'm trying to to create here as far as our full-time professional program. Sounds it's a like well-rounded... the performers we we look for all the time and can never find. Yep. Yeah. You know, it's uh, I, I don't want to take anything from from some of the amazing organizations that are that are out there because they're doing a fantastic job. Um, but it's really difficult to. You know, maybe 20 years ago, you could get away with having just one act. But with the market as saturated as it is, you have to be a well-rounded, excuse me, well-rounded, classically trained circus performer if you want to, to work for some of the top companies. Mm-hmm. So, so you're going to have to get all of those skills, and that's what we really push here at Circus Maine. You know, I, I run our full day, uh, our full-time professional program, and it's called Foundations and Fundamentals for a reason, because I want people to get the foundations for all the different things that I learned, you know, up at the National Circus School in Montreal, 
and I want them to be able to take that on to their specializations. The way that you were talking about it earlier made it sound like perhaps um, this school is not a not a not for profit setup. Is it how did, how have you sort of set it up from a from a structural point of view? Because it sounds like you're doing something that's pretty different from from the traditional thinking. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we can. It's a, it's very big in the news right now in the in the circus community world about uh, you know nonprofits and, and what happens to them. Uh, there's some pretty inevitable evidence that that nonprofits have a tendency to to suffer from infighting or fund misappropriation. I mean, we can talk about this until the cows come home. We are currently a for-profit organization. Um, we are considering turning becoming a nonprofit because you know inevitably you can raise a lot of funds if you're a nonprofit. You get a lot of a lot of good advantages tax-wise and so on and so forth. But we are currently um, a for-profit organization. Uh, I know some very successful ones like Aloft Aerial Dance in uh, Chicago, uh, w- which I've taught at and, and know the, the the owner personally. That's a for profit and it's 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 working quite well. So, yeah, yeah I definitely I, I definitely don't see a need just to you know, t- totally. I definitely don't see a need just to be a for profit uh, a not for profit for the sake of it. Particularly, you mm-hmm. know, in in today's age where getting getting government support is presumably you know very limited um, and very on, limited. only getting only getting tougher. So this is a, a more broad kind of question, but, you know, as I'm sure anybody, particularly you who's in the industry, can see, like, this has been quite a year of change for the for the circus business. We've seen sort of freeing oh, yes. clothes, Big Apple's under new management. A lot of the mud shows are, are struggling or on hiatus. I think uh, there's another one that announced this morning saying they were canceling all their all their um, their summer shows. And on the flip side, you have a lot of these, you know, sort of younger youth collectives popping up. Cirque du Soleil is sort of changing what it is. So as far as somebody who is trying to help bring up this next generation of circus artists, could you dive a little bit deeper into you th- what you think they have to learn to be sort of prepared for this world? And uh, when like student is thinking about act creation, you know, you've made a lot of different acts for a lot of different shows and, and taught for other people. What are some of those sort of like backbone elements that, you know, one needs to be thinking about in, in today's climate? Oh, yeah. No, it's um, it, this is and this is the number one thing. That I that I ask anybody that applies for my program or wants to come here and be associated. With this is what's your goal? If your goal is to to have fun, that's that's great. But if your goal is to be an entertainer, and I I, I unofficially call this school in my head, uh, this is this is the show business school because I want you to learn how to make a living as a performer. If you can't make a living at doing this, then it's just a fringe art. You you have to be a professional, and that requires that you have a well-rounded uh, circus career, you know, you have to have all the training and ground acts. Ground acts are the one thing that's going to keep you alive. That there's a reason why hand balances work into the 50s is because I can plunk down my hand balancing canes and I can do an act almost anywhere. But if you're doing swinging trapeze and you need an entire big top to uh, to to you know revolve around you performing your act, then you're going to have to compete with all the other swinging trapeze acts out there. And most of the people I know that have really solid ground acts, whether it's hand balancing, contortion, juggling, partner acrobatics, um, they all do very well for themselves. Um, but I find that the, that the aerialists are struggling a lot to, because there's just so darn many of them, you know. Um, so whenever I advise anybody, I'd say learn some ground skills, learn how to pass clubs, you know, get a tumbling pass in there, learn how to dance really well. Make yourself valuable to, to these circus companies 
because you're not going to just be hired for your one aerial act. You're going to be hired for all the other things that you're going to be doing on stage. And that's what it's like to be part of some of these companies. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. <laughs> Sorry, when you said club juggling, my brain went to like, oh man, I don't know if I've even seen like a more than one person, like a group club juggling number, a new one in years, mm-hmm. which is, mm-hmm. you know, genre-wise, one of my favorite favorite kinds of acts. Oh yeah, no, we, we all, I, I I can pass clubs, any anybody in ESE, and we hated it, trust me. Um, <laughs> and the people that hated it the most were the aerialists. Yeah. <laughs> they, they wanted to be up there doing their wonderful stuff, and it's it's fantastic. It's so great to be up there, uh, shining like that. But you you I I honestly this is where I know I'm not being very politically correct, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of back uh, backlash about it. But learn some darn ground skills, you know. Um, most of the most of the performers that I know, you you don't even you don't even see them at the schools because they're all outperforming. I, I have friends that work in the Orlando area, and they're making six figures, you know, because you know they can do four different acts at once so that's really how you're gonna get better is if, if you have solid sounds practical um classic basic skills and if you have some ground mm-hmm. ground skills as well so yeah one performer that we work with a good amount is jordan dawson who, who graduated enc as well and he went mm-hmm. in kind of as a generalist and we used him for Chinese pull, for straps, yep. for basing, yep. for hoop tumbling, diving. for hoop diving. I mean, he was just like the MVP of the show because he has yep. so many skills, you know, and he would end up, well, he was only supposed to be really in the first number and then he ended up being throughout mm-hmm. the whole show and, you know, it was really, and then you can tell when you have a performer that only can do one, one skill, when you have someone who can do so many, you're like, oh, yep. wow, you can't do anything else. <laughs> um, yeah. You know. yeah. And, and it's. And that's not say, taking anything from from some really powerful and talented soloists. Right. But a lot of times, these people that the soloists that they're looking at are the people that are in like A plus plus range. These are these are you know the Dima Shines or whatever, like these really really talented people. Um, but you've got to be practical. Like that's what show business is. Show mm-hmm. business is two words. Show business. So um, you have to know how to sell yourself and what sells. Oh, great. Well, I think this has been super interesting and, and definitely helpful for our listeners who are sort of wondering how to take the the next step into into becoming a professional artist. We end every podcast with the same same three questions. So the the first one being, is there a, a book or a movie or a TV show or a YouTube video um, that you would recommend somebody who is uh, just getting into circus watch or read or listen to that, you know, you found particularly helpful or interesting to you. Hmm. That include could be well, seeing a show as well. If there's a show that stood out uh, as something particularly special. Um, yeah. What is it? Uh, the June Bug Symphony by James Teary. Oh yeah, that's a is, great uh, show. He the the grandson of Charlie Chaplin, I believe. And like I met, I managed to see this when I was in Sweden. And not only is it amazing to see a man who looks like Charlie Chaplin on stage, who's tumbling. I mean, this guy does so many different things and he's a phenomenal clown in mime. Um, that is like, I remember walking out of that theater going up, oh, well, so much for being a circus performer. It's everything's already been done. It's right there. Um, so yeah, anything by James Peary, especially the, the June bug symphony, I believe it's called. Oh, that's great. That's what I would recommend. That's my style of, of weird circus. And, and for listeners who live in New York city, you can actually go to Lincoln center library and, and watch it on tape there. 
Uh, and bam, yep. the Brooklyn Academy of Music has his latest show, uh, What the Toad oh, yeah. Knew, is playing, I believe, in September of this year, 2017. I haven't seen it. I really, we really love to see it, but I heard it's, of course, fantastic. So. Yeah, I'm, ex- I'm excited. So our, our second question is, has there been a piece of advice, good or bad, that has, has stuck with you? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> my, my original mentor, who I never even mentioned from South Florida who taught me how to walk on stilts and taught me how to juggle. And I, I basically supplemented my first year of circus school by, by basically getting, you know, crappy stilt walking and, uh, gigs and walk around juggling gigs. He was the one who said, it's two words, man, it's show business. Um, and a lot of the practical skills on how to, how to, how to sell myself and how to, to confidently, um, ask for what you're worth, uh, come, come from that era. So yeah. Um, I think a lot of people forget that it's it's show business and it has a long-standing tradition, and uh, and it is it's two words, <laughs> show and business. And our final question is, who do you think we should have on the podcast next? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> who should you have next? Well, you could always ask my business partner Josh Oliver. He has a very interesting take on things, and um, he's fantastic. Who else? Um, Give me one second. Who else? I suppose you could reach out to, to Shana Swanson at Aloft Aerial Dance. She's got a, some really interesting stories to tell. Um, and I think you could also do the Flynn Creek Circus. Uh, my, my very good friend Blaze Burge from the Flynn Creek Circus is, uh, is an excellent person that you might want to talk to about running a circus company in the United States. Where is the Flynn Creek Circus? It's in Mendocino, California. Oh, interesting. Corey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and telling us your story and talking about Circus Maine. We, we really appreciate it. No problem. Thank we'll you, guys. It was to, a fantastic um, interview. To Portland. Yeah, I got to check out the space. Come on down anytime. Um, we have a bi-monthly cabaret. The next one is the third weekend of August. And you can see, like, we do a whole, we turn this whole place into a variety theater. So come see one of our shows. I'll get you some tickets. Awesome. Thanks so much, Corey. Yep. Thanks, Corey. No worries. That was our interview with the artistic director of Circus Maine, Corey Tabino. If you like the podcast or that episode, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, tweet us, or email us at hello at hideawaycircus.com. Have a great week.